I want you to think of a uh, circumstance in your life that you thought, how will I ever recover from this? How could God ever use this for good and for his purposes? And um, we learned in the book of Habakkuk that it's a sort of lament. And um, we all have our laments. But how many times in Scripture do we see something occurring to one of God's servants and, and them thinking, this is so evil. This, this is so horrible. How could God ever turn this? to be used for good. And I want you to think of that circumstance and I want you to think of and see maybe in many cases how he has used it for good or how he has yet to use it for good. And so in this time of prayer, I want you to think of our great God and how he is able to cause all things. We know, Romans 8 says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So just in this moment, I want you to think of that. Thank him for that. Lord, you are so good, and uh, we trust you completely, just as the prophet Habakkuk did. That though things seem as though they're ruined, this could never produce life. This could never sprout anew. Uh, you are big enough and powerful enough and gracious and merciful enough to use it for our good, for your glory. And so, Lord, give us faith to trust you. Um, we need to have you increase our faith. Uh, and so I thank you for each person here. It's no coincidence that they are here. Lord, I believe that you sovereignly have directed each person here to speak to us through song, through testimony. Um, and through your word. And so use it in a powerful way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, before we begin, uh, there is a documentary that has come out recently, just in the last couple months, um, called Sheep Among Wolves. Um, a documentary uh, that explores the growing underground movement in the country of Iran. And I want you to catch just a brief little interview with one of the producers here. And uh, how God, our God, our sovereign God, grows and multiplies the church, His church, in some of the most opposed places using some of the least likely people. Amazing how He does that. Watch this. Dalton Thomas, one of the producers for Sheep Among Wolves 2, is here now to tell us more about this amazing movement. Dalton, first, you say this is a movement led by women. Tell us more about that. Yeah, the configuration of the leadership of the church in Iran, one, it's massively reproducing. It's just explosive. Uh, the statistics of it are, are undeniable. Um, those who are tracking the statistics of it also have noted that the predominant leadership component of the church in Iran is female. Now, uh, there's a lot of reasons behind this, but the, the fact, it, it, as just a standalone fact with all the components connected to it, is that behind the veil, something profound is going on inside of Iran. How dangerous is it, though, for a woman if she's caught leading a group of Jesus followers? I mean, clearly your video depicts this is a dangerous thing. Yeah, there, it's very dangerous. So the death, imprisonment, torture, rape, it's in terms of 
evangelism, discipleship, church planting. One of the, the language that the Iranian church uses is that converts run away from persecution, disciples face it and die for the Lord. So the way that they explain it is we're not interested in, in church planting or making converts. What we're interested in is, is seeing a decentralized, rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that puts the yoke of responsibility on every believer as soon as they come in contact with Jesus through, vicariously through his followers in the land. And so this is why it's running like wildfires, because it's going from woman to woman. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's predominantly female-led, is because the women are engaging the women, and it's 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 running out of control. It's like the woman at the well, you know, in mm -hmm. John 4. She, it, it exploded because she went back to her village and the gospel spread like fire. Well, Dalton, how big would you say this movement is? Are we talking thousands, tens of thousands? Much bigger than that. Much wow. bigger than that. Wow. Yeah. What impact would you say this movement is having on the nation of Iran as a whole? I think the best way to explain it is there's two Irans. There's the Iran that you see in the news, which is the regime. It's everything that you hear in the news. But then there's the actual country, the actual Iranian people. And then within that larger group of the Iranian people is the Iranian underground church. And these people, they love Israel. They love the United States. They love the West. They hate the regime. They hate Islam. They hate is radical Islam. They, they hate the oppression of their leaders. It's a, it's a completely different... Once we started coming in contact with it, we thought, oh my gosh, this is not what you, you've been led to believe in the media at all. I think, to answer your question, we're going to wake up one day and realize that in the same way that China flipped 100 years ago and went from being the largest unreached people group in the world to being the largest church in the world, the same thing is happening today in Iran, as well as Afghanistan and a number of other countries around Iran. So it's flipping. We're going to wake up here in a couple of years and realize that the, the, the center of God's activity is not the West. It very much is the Middle East, and Iran is going to be at the tip of the spear of leading the next generation of what it looks like to follow Messiah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God grows and multiplies his church in some of the most oppressed and opposed areas from some of the least expected people. That's how God has always worked. And we're going to see it in Acts chapter 9. And so... Um, they, they, the Iranian underground church says, converts run away from persecution, disciples face it and die for the Lord. We are not interested in church planting or making converts. We are interested in, in seeing a decentralized, rapidly repro reproducing discipleship movement that puts the yoke of responsibility on every believer as soon as they come in contact with Jesus through his followers in the land. This is why it's running like wildfire. Why is the book of Acts running like wildfire? Why is the gospel just spreading so quickly? Is It is a discipleship movement. And, and we are seeing one man in Acts chapter 9 that would be the least expected person to ever become a disciple of Jesus, and then we see him having his own disciples in this very chapter. And, and so it's, it's unbelievable. Tertullian said, uh, early church father, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We've seen it from Acts chapter 2 and following. Now we will see it in our own very day. Um, we said that the book of Acts is like a story of God's grace flooding out to the world. From the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, Nothing is more prominent in Acts than the spread of the gospel message. The good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again for sinners like me, like you. And, and so uh, in Acts 1.8, he says, When the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. And so we see this happen in the book of Acts, uh, kind of an outline, 1 to 7. The church starts, uh, 8 to 12. The church is scattering. That's where we find ourselves right now, a scattering church uh, in Acts 9. And then um, we will see where it sends to the end of the earth. And so isn't it amazing to think that, that it flips? So this could the hub of, of Christianity be the Middle East,
I, I mean, that this is where it's so rapidly reproducing itself. I mean, that's unbelievable in these Muslim-dominated countries. And so we've looked at these progress reports. We've just looked at two of them. That in Acts 2.47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, 3,000, 5,000, multitudes. Um, in Acts 7, the word of the Lord kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Who would have thought the very ones who were persecuting the church all of a sudden become disciples? Unbelievable. And, um, and so we come to Acts chapter 9 and we see our next progress report in verse 31. And I'd love to, um, to read this section. Our theme verse is Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the task. Say that with me. Finish the task. Say that. Finish the task. What task? The task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's amazing grace. And so we're still in this process. And, um, and so what we see here in Acts chapter 9, uh, follow along. I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'd like you to follow along with me. Now Saul, who was introduced to us just a, a chapter or two earlier, who was the man standing as they stoned Stephen after his powerful message. And uh, they were putting the coat, their coats well, they could throw stones better without their coats on, and so they threw their coats at his feet. He was giving uh, his approval to what was taking place there, and then he began to ravage the church, we see in the beginning of chapter 8. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the, to, to the synagogues at Damascus. Where's Damascus? Uh, Syria. Okay. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it's about, I don't know, 150 miles. It's a long distance, so it's about a week's journey. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Verse 7, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate or drank. Verse 10, Now there was a disciple uh, at Damascus named Ananias, and, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen a vision, a man, uh, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now you realize that God is using all kinds of visions these days, right? Especially in these Muslim-dominated world. I, I went to hear from our, our other missionary, uh, Charlie Thorson, this week out in Tama, and he recounted uh, right off of his tablet uh, uh, letters from missionaries and how this very thing is happening in our world today. You don't hear it in the news. But Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord, I have heard... From many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight 
And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Spiritual blindness, physical blindness, spiritual blindness. He couldn't see. Now he sees. You can maybe identify with this. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for, this, for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowered him in a large basket. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to him how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him. And, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. For he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. Verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The ESV says to multiply, to multiply. This is God's Word. This is God's Word. So we're going to look at the Gospel proclamation in the first few verses, uh, beginning at verse 19. The context of this passage is the spread of the Gospel from Jerusalem... Acts 1 to 7, to Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 to 12. Especially in chapter 8, we see Philip going to Samaria, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the city of Samaria. And in chapter 9, we see this context being the miraculous conversion and commission of Saul of Tarsus. This is all according to God's perfect plan. You'd, you'd almost think it as if there's a hand guiding this all. Uh, unbelievable. So Stephen preaches this powerful message. The people are pierced to their heart, just as they were in Acts 2 after Peter's sermon. But instead of saying, what must we do, and 3,000 are saved, they pick up stones and they, dis- they gnash their teeth and they decide to kill Stephen. So he's dead. And Saul is standing there watching this. And Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Who would have thought? The very place that Jesus said in Acts 1.8, the gospel would go. Acts 8.3 He's ravaging the church. Acts 8, 4 to 8, Philip's proclaiming Christ in Samaria. In chapter, at the end of chapter 8, he, he's leading an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ through, through um, the reading of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. Um, and then we come to chapter 9, and Saul is breathing threats and murders against the disciples. And the guy ends up meeting Jesus and getting saved. I mean, this, this is unbelievable. Warren Wearsby says, Saul of Tarsus is the last person in Jerusalem you would have chosen to be the great apostles to the Gentiles. No one would have chosen him. He's an enemy of the church. He is Christ's enemy. And he, he meets him here. And, and who are you, Lord? Verse 5 of chapter 9, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This tells us that the church 
is identified with Christ and Christ with his church so that when you mess with the church, you're messing with Christ. And so Saul never forgot how he had violently persecuted Christians and yet by the abundant mercy and grace of God, he was saved and chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. People were amazed. We see this um, in verse 21. They were amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And he just kept right on proving that Jesus was the Messiah. What a, what a, a life change. Um, at least five times in the New Testament, we read the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, his testimony, at least five times, probably more, count Galatians 1, 6, and, and, and uh, little snippets here and there, but three times in the book of Acts, we read his testimony. I wonder why this man's testimony is shared so many times in the New Testament for us. Well, listen to what he says in this chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Paul writing to Timothy, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was, literally, I was mercied. It just, it pummeled me, the mercy of God, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He just, you just poked him, and, and he just would, like, Talk about God's grace in saving him through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. God grows and multiplies his church in the most opposed and oppressed places using the least expected people who proclaim the name of Jesus. That's it. So we look at the religious persecution Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, um, and, and let me just stop there for a minute. Many believe that Galatians 1 fits back into our passage between verses 22 and 23. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Galatians 1, Paul says this. I want you to keep your finger here uh, as you're looking there. So he kept proving in Damascus and then it says, when many days had elapsed, we don't know how many days, but in Galatians 1, we have to fit this in somehow. He says, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Now listen, verse 17, Galatians 1. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Saul's time of ministry preparation, most believe, was in this period of time, up to possibly three years, that he was in the desert of Arabia. We would call it Sinai the wilderness of Sinai, where he was personally instructed by the Lord Jesus and then went back to Damascus, that we see here, and then to Jerusalem. R. Kent Hughes says, the first step of God's preparation of Saul was a lonely stint in the Arabian wilderness, specifically the Sinai wilderness. There is a divine poetry here. At Sinai, Moses received the law. Now at Sinai, Saul learns about grace. And he is just, he is overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God and salvation. And so we see all of his letters 
that come out in the New Testament and how he uh, so highlights being saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Unbelievable. So after returning to Damascus and after many days, the Jews were trying to kill Saul, but he escaped in a basket. I guess you could say that he was the first basket case in the ministry. I'm also one. And um, and maybe you are too. Bad joke. All right. But they were seeking to kill. Three times I noted in this passage, it speaks of the enemies trying to kill him. Trying to kill him. Three times. And so we see this opposition to the gospel and the spread of the gospel. Donald Gray Barnhouse says that when truth has made a radical transformation in a life, there is only one thing we can do. We can admit that the power of God has been at work and that therefore one's own life must be changed when we see the change in someone else. The only other alternative is the one which Saul's enemies took to seek to destroy the evidence. And this is very perceptive. Every martyrdom that has ever taken place has been an effort to destroy the evidence. If Jesus Christ is real, if he has died and rose again, and these individuals have come to realize that and come to trust him and give their life to him, and all of a sudden they start doing crazy, even miraculous things in the name of Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit, you have one of two options. You can either destroy them and, and the evidence that convicts you of, in your own life Stephen, that's exactly what they did to him. Or, like they did in Peter's message, they were pierced to the heart, and 3,000 came to faith in Jesus Christ. We have an option. Because the reality is, Jesus Christ died and rose again, and Saul met him, saw him on the road to Damascus. That is amazing. This, this whole chapter 9 is an incredible turnabout. Um, and, and, and really a bridge to what God is going to do. But Jesus told him that. He said to Ananias, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's all part of God's plan. So finally, the uh, church affiliation and multiplication. As I studied this passage, I was seeing the, the plot thicken as we see this oppression their desire to kill Saul, destroy the evidence. And I see this as it, as it ramps up and they, they, they get him out of the city in a basket of Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem and then he can't join the church. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, here, here I feel like this is almost like the climax of the past. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple. When Saul came to Jerusalem, the disciples were afraid, and because of his reputation, they doubted his conversion. But check out verse 27. But Barnabas. This is huge. This is a very significant contrast. But Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And then he was with them. It was Barnabas who graciously believed Saul's testimony and he welcomed him into the church as Saul spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus. He, he knew his testimony. He knew that what he was doing and, um, and I want to just ask a question. When you think of the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, what key players come to your mind first? Talk to me. What key players in the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, who are the key players? Peter. Stephen. Philip, maybe, taking it to Samaria. That is pretty bold. John was with Peter. 
Would you ever think of Barnabas? Anybody, would you think of Barnabas? And I ask you this because I wonder what the future of the church in in Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas would have been if it wasn't for Barnabas believing his testimony, bringing him to the apostles, welcoming him into the church, and this man was like a spark. Saul, this guy is going to be used by God in such a mighty way to take the gospel to the Gentiles. If it wasn't for Barnabas. I, I, I have to ask myself, am, am, I, am I a Barnabas? Would I be someone who's always doubting somebody else's story? Or am I willing to take a chance that God in His grace truly did transform someone as as horrendous as their past was, could I be a Barnabas that could see what God is doing, trusting God and welcoming him, introducing him to the rest of the disciples? That's huge. In spite of this constant opposition and attack that the church was experiencing, it grew, it multiplied. Notice notice verse 31. The church throughout all Judea Okay, we've heard of that before in Acts 1.8. And Galilee and Samaria, Acts 1.8, enjoyed peace being built up going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. This is the work of God. God sovereignly grows the church, multiplies the church, spreads the gospel, in some of the most opposed and oppressed areas, using the least likely people who are willing to proclaim the name of Jesus. It's all about the name of Jesus. It is. So my first question as we come to a close is, have you come to believe in the one and only name of Jesus to be saved? That's, that's the question before us. If Jesus is who he says he is, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, he is waiting to come to judge the world. And, and, and he is alive, he is a risen king. We sang about it right from the start of the service. If this is who he is, it demands a response in our lives. And it should be no coincidence that throughout the book of Acts, it's always been the name of Jesus that caused the persecution and opposition. Always. Today, the most persecuted minority in all of the world in all the world are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. This name. Count on it. It's always been that way. And immediately they began to pro- he, Saul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. He increased in strength, confounding the Jews he lived, as he lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The question is, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name that has been given. Oh, I'm sorry, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men, not me, by which we must be saved. Think about that for just a moment. One name given under heaven among men. No other name by which we must be saved. He's the only one who died, who rose again, in order to satisfy the wrath of God for sinners, rebels. I'm no different than the Apostle Paul, Saul. I'm no different. Just as much of a rebel just as much of wanting to do life on my own, apart from God, selfish, proud, and yet God in His grace can save through one man, Jesus Christ. Amazing. One name. Have you trusted Him? Number two, who is the one... This could be Saul or it could be Saul. I said Saul. Who is the one Saul? You have counted too far gone to be saved. You can't 
study a passage like this without asking yourself that question. And Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. He knew his reputation. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. The Gospel Transformation Bible says, Here again, we are admonished against condemning anyone as lost beyond hope, and this includes ourselves. We must not consider ourselves or anyone else so far lost beyond hope that they could not be saved. Saul's life just speaks powerfully to this. And there it was, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him. And out at Damascus, he was speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. So maybe I want you to think of that one person as a point of application. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be... Um, someone you work with, I don't know. Someone who is literally ravaging your life. And they are not beyond God's grace. Saul was not. He said he loved calling himself the foremost of sinners. I'm the foremost. Spurgeon said, well, if Saul was the foremost, no one else can be the foremost, I guess. So you're not the foremost. No one here has sinned more apparently than Saul and how he persecuted the church of God, seeking to destroy it. And then God saved him. Number three, how are we affected by persecution for Jesus' name? I mean, that, this is convicting. I read about this. I read about what's going on in Iran and I think, Would I be a convert that ran in the face of persecution or would I be a disciple that faced it, willing to die in the name of Jesus? In Acts 4, the authorities, the religious leaders said, what shall we do with these men, Peter and John? But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they'd summons them, they command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, when they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That probably wasn't real pleasant. And, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. It's all about the name. It's always been about his name. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't mention it. Everything will be fine. Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? So, when we think of persecution in the world and maybe the Operation World book uh, that, that Kyle's referencing or the window on the world that he referenced, maybe these books would, would help us as we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in the world. Um, I was just listening to one um, blog uh, or, or uh, a little YouTube video. The, the man who studies uh, the persecuted church says, don't sentimentalize the suffering. Don't sensationalize the suffering, but realize the suffering. Pray and intercede for them. One video said, uh, one, one person who lives in a, in a very uh, Muslim-dominated area, persecuted area, said, it's not the persecution killing us. It's that, it's that we suffer alone. We, we need the church to join us, as Hebrews tells us, with those who are in prison, to 
pray with them. I mean, I, I was just leaving India, and 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 then the news hits about this pastor from Tennessee who who flew over to do a large Sunday school conference of a thousand different people in in uh, northeast India, uh, very close to where I was, and and he goes in, and his problem was that he carried too much cash on him, so they flagged him, they took him aside, and at the next airport they arrested him, uh, threw him in jail. Uh, detained him, took his passport away, and so they released him, but then he's stranded. He can't get out because they won't give his passport back. And so, so there's different ways that they can oppress and, and persecute believers. But, uh, this is just a small example of what is going on in our world. And so, I encourage us to have a way in which we can pray for the persecuted church. And then finally, how and where do we see Christ's church multiplying? I'm telling you that God is multiplying His church, growing it in, in some of the most least likely places, most oppressed, and using some of the most unexpected people to do His work. We see it in Acts 9, and we see it now today. All right? Persecution was used to spread the church and it still is spreading. All right, uh, that's it. Um, worship team, I'd like you to come. And as you come, uh, just a few statistics. Europe birthed Protestantism, okay? North America helped spread it around the world, but the future of Protestant Christianity appears to be Africa and Asia. Today, 41% of all Protestants live in Africa, according to the Center of Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. By 2050, that number is expected to exceed 53% of Protestants will live in Africa. Out of 560 million Protestants, more than 228 million call Africa home in 2017. There's more than that, that's more than 2.5 times as many uh, in Europe and almost four times as many in North America. Asia is the second highest Protestant population. Um, you can get all these statistics yourself, but I'll just finish with this. So you might check out the Sheep Among Wolves 2, this documentary um, on, the, on the growing movement, discipleship movement in Iran. Uh, fastest growing church in the world, they claim. One identified Iranian uh, church leader even went so far as to say that Islam is dead in Iran. The church leader who remained anonymous for his protection asked, what if I told you Islam is dead? What if I told you the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you no one follows Islam inside Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly, he said, what is happening inside Iran. God is moving powerfully inside this country. The church leader also shared that they believe that Ayatollah Khomeini is the best evangelist for Jesus. The Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light and the people discovered it was a lie. After 40 years under Islamic law, a, a utopia, according to them, they've had the worst devastation in the 5,000-year history of Iran. And so, he says, Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus until he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Did you catch that? Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. Am I convert or am I a disciple basically what he's saying is that when hardship and oppression and persecution comes we will find out who the disciples are and who aren't and I by the grace of God want to be that follower of Jesus that clings to the name of Jesus that is not ashamed of this name that would share this name even if I was faced with death for having 
followed the name of Jesus. God, help us to be followers that are willing to risk our lives. We have it so easy here. Lord, teach us, show us how we can be partnering with believers in these parts of the world that we can't even imagine what it would be like to live. As I go out my door, what's going to happen to me today? And apparently it's happening in Iran, Afghanistan, so many countries in the Middle East. I didn't even know that this could be the hub of Christianity right now. Oh, Lord, help us to pray. Help us to examine our own hearts and see what kind of a commitment we have to Jesus as our risen King. And we need your power by your Spirit, Lord, to be your witnesses. That's the key, the promise of the Father. Thank you, Lord, for how you're growing your church and spreading your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. I stand with
with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to salvation that you need to pray for this week. Um, maybe you need to pray for those who are being persecuted and pray for God's strength that they could continue to proclaim the name of Jesus in one of the most oppressed areas where they live. Um, yeah. Maybe that soul is you and you need to trust Christ today. Quit running, quit rebelling, and surrender and submit to the Lord Jesus. He's the risen King. He rules. Jesus rules. So, if we come before the authorities and they say, you either recant that Jesus is Lord or we'll kill you. You just say, for me to live is Christ, but to die, it's gain. Well, then we'll torture you. The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to me. What can we do to you? Nothing. Nothing. I'm a follower of Jesus, the risen King. I'll reign with Him forever. Lord, we have nothing to fear in Jesus Christ. Teach us more what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, not just a convert, not fearful, but willing to proclaim your name and speak of your name to others, Lord. It's the one